Hello and welcome back. So this is the final thematic session of today's Institute for Government Conference, Government 2023, uh, with thanks again to Grant Thornton for their support of the event. Glad to see our two virtual guests have shown up on the screen as well. So we will still have the live recording of the IFG's Inside Briefing podcast to come after this, followed by the all-important drinks reception. But for the next hour, or just under the subject of the debate, will be England 2023, devolving power and tackling regional inequality. So we'll be discussing the government's levelling up strategy, recent devolution deals in places including the East Midlands, the North East and other parts of England. Um, we'll be talking about Labour's alternative proposals, which we've just heard a bit about from, from Lisa Nandy. And we'll be considering how devolution can be extended across the 50% or so of the country that has been left out so far. My name is Akash Pound. I'm a senior fellow here at the IFG. I lead our work on devolution, and I'm really happy to be chairing this discussion with our panel of four excellent speakers, um, who I will introduce now. So first of all, I'm pleased to welcome Jamie Driscoll, mayor of the north of Tyne. Jamie was elected to that post um, in 2019 when it was created, and uh, more recently he's been centrally involved in the negotiations leading to a big new devolution deal for the wider Northeast region. And that's going to mean his current job ceases to exist in 2024, but to be replaced by a mayor of the bigger region with more powers and a bigger budget. And I'm sure Jamie will be talking about the opportunities that that will offer um, the people and communities of the Northeast. So, Jamie, welcome. Um, also dialing in virtually, uh, welcome to Jen Williams. Jen is uh, speaking to us from Manchester. She is Northern England correspondent at the Financial Times, was previously politics and investigations editor at Manchester Evening News, and is a close observer of devolution and politics in Manchester and uh, more generally across the north of England. Jen, great to have you with us as well. Um, and then our two in-person guests. Um, so first of all, Ben, good to see you. Ben Bradley is MP for Mansfield and also, I think uniquely, is leader of his uh, local council, Nottinghamshire County Council. Um, and in that capacity, um, he was closely involved in the negotiations in that part of the, of the country um, that have led to the conclusion of an East Midlands devolution deal. So if that is implemented, there will be a mayor of that region covering Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Nottingham and Derby cities as well uh, from next year. And finally, uh, welcome to Seb Payne. Seb was till recently Whitehall editor at the FT, but is now director of the think tank Onwards. Um, he's the author of a couple of books including uh, Broken Heartlands, which I've been reading in preparation for this event, uh, which is all about the Red Wall um, and uh, how Labour lost it in 2019, essentially. So um, I think we're going to have a very interesting debate. Um, and with those introductory remarks, I'm keen to get started. So um, thank you all for uh, joining. Those online, of course, can submit questions on Slido. Those will be fed to me on my tablet here, and there'll be plenty of time, hopefully, for questions from those in the room. Okay, so um, I'd like to start 
by talking about well, the twin policy objectives that we've referred to in the, the title of this event, devolving power and tackling regional inequality. And there seems to be now broad cross-party agreement, actually, that England is both too centralised and too regionally unequal, that those two things are related to each other and that devolution, therefore, must be part of the answer to solving regional inequality. Um, I'm interested to hear from you how you think those issues do relate to, to each other. And, and Ben, I'd like to come to you first. Why is devolution so, so crucial if we are serious about levelling up and, and closing the gaps between the regions? Um, yeah, I think it is absolutely integral to it. And I think both parties have kind of come to that conclusion um, this, over the course of the last year or so. I think clearly when you have particular local challenges in you know, different parts of the country are very different. Um, then inevitably you will also seek uh, local knowledge and, and local solutions to those challenges. I've found planning is a very good example of where I've always said that you will never find a national planning framework or policy that works for every part of the country because uh, our challenges and, and what we're trying to achieve are so very different. I think that very often you find um, you know, the level that, that I kind of sit at, I suppose, that county framework where you've got um, both a, a kind of upward-looking regional uh, infrastructure and investment kind of branch to that and also down into communities and the very local. It's quite a good level, actually, to be able to see those challenges and priorities and to come up with a plan. Um, unfortunately, at the minute, we don't have either the funding or the clout in terms of decision-making to then implement that. But I think there's two things that will be really integral um, to this devolution uh, kind of premise if we're going to um, deal with inequality in that sense. The first is um, being able to overcome that kind of treasury tick box that means places like Mansfield that I represent uh, are never top of the treasury's list for places to invest because you don't have the land value, you don't get the uplift, you don't get the return. Um, that's why it, is, it doesn't get the investment in the first place. So uh, devolution has to overcome that. And I think the other thing is about having a coherent strategy on a local level. So where we've seen examples I've talked um, in the past about buses, for example, we submit a big bid to government for buses uh, and they give us back half the money for half of the strategy we've put forward, which means that the strategy no longer exists because we've only got half of it and you end up with piecemeal little bits of investment. Whereas actually, I think on that local level, you can really tie these things together more coherently. So um, they're the two things I suppose I'd like to, to try and deliver in the East Midlands. If we can do that, I think we can really start to tackle some of those local challenges in, in actually very targeted bits of communities. Mm -hmm. And. Uh Jamie, uh, coming to you next, I mean, you've been doing devolution for the, for the past few years, and, and as mentioned, um, there'll be more power to come to the northeast. What, what is it that devolution enables you to, to do to, to improve um, outcomes in, in, in the northeast? Yeah, it's a, a fascinating question, that link between devolution and levelling up. Um, devolution is decentralisation of power. Levelling up is the reduction of inequalities. Um, and you can't do devolution um, without resources to come from central government. And it's the, the better allocation of those resources that makes a difference. So um, the adult education budget, this is post-19 skills, was devolved to us um, since um, the, the pre-devolution, it was 22,000 uh, enrolments a year. It's now 33,000 enrolments for a year for the same budget. So we've got a, the actual figures of 49.7% increase for the same budget. Now, that could never have been done under any government, no matter how dedicated the civil servants from Whitehall, because they don't have the immediate links in the area. They're not talking to the businesses. They're not talking to the providers. They're not doing that capacity building for delivery. 
Um, and anyone in local government or regional government will tell you that the one of the biggest problems is this start-stop nature of the funding. Ben was alluding to funding bids there. You put in a bid and you get something back later and it might run for two years or three years if you're lucky. Well, who can build an organisation that has world-leading capacity and efficiency in that time when everybody knows that sort of uh, 12 months in, they're going to be putting their CVs out there because their jobs might not be available. So that's the big difference it makes. And we've been able to create 14 years worth of jobs against our devolution target in just three and a half years. And that's working with micro businesses, bringing in big investors, um, putting in infrastructure where it's needed, but crucially, linking these things up. And one of the things that would make the biggest difference is that link between school education, the career service, adult education and employers. And this is an issue that takes decades to solve. It, at the very least, you're going to see 10 years uh, when you've got kids at school now, what's going to happen to them in the future. So this, this is one of the big advantages of regional devolution. Uh, it tends to work very well cross-party. Um, you've got Ben and I, different parties, both agreed on pretty much everything we're talking about here. Um, but it's not subject to the political cycles in the same way that Westminster is. Yeah, well, this uh, point that you, you just made at the end, I want to come back to. Is, is there a difference between the Labour and Conservative approaches to this? Uh, Lisa Nandy was suggesting there was. We, we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. Jen, I'm, I'd like to bring you in now. Um, Jamie started uh, already been talking about the importance of of money is not just about devolving powers, right? So this is my question to you, really. I mean, how far do you think devolution can, can shift the dial, shall we say, on, on growth and productivity without a big reallocation of, of public spending and, and resources um, from richer to poorer regions? Well, I mean, I think with with the with the money comes the power right so if you're going to talk about devolution then there isn't going to be an awful lot you can deliver at a local level unless there is a transfer of uh, of funding from from london outwards and as, as jamie just talked about part of the point of doing that is that you are able at that um at that local level place-based to, to use the jargon um you're able to look at the way your adult education budget overlaps with your I don't know, with you, with the brownfield funding that you have available for remediation, for um, for uh, for green programs, for transport, and so on and so forth. So it isn't just about providing more money and resources. It's also about the ability to be more um, strategic with it. I think that um, one of the one of the the elephant in the room on a lot of this debate is the state of local government in general. Um, and at the moment, we have, uh, you know, an almost uniquely fiscally centralised country, which means that at the same time as we're all here talking about devolution deals, in reality, local government has been kind of clinging on desperately now for, for many, many years. And there isn't a kind of, there isn't a coherent funding, you know, funding stream for local government that, that makes sense. Not only has that funding um, come out of the sector over that period, which has meant that you've got a, a sector that has been hollowed out in terms of capacity and institutional knowledge and the ability to be strategic uh, uh, locally, but actually in the last couple of years, it's become even more centralised because of the proliferation of these centralised bidding pots that local government has to, has to bid into. So one of the things I find quite strange about this whole agenda really is that you have 
two directions of travel that are are moving away from one another, essentially. Um, So, yeah, I mean, resource and spending at local level, as far as I can see, is... um, is absolutely central to the agenda because, as as Ben says, if you are uh, a local leader in Nottinghamshire or in Greater Manchester and you are looking at where actually it would make sense to try and lever in the private sector investment here and match it up with the public sector investment there in order to get the biggest bang of your buck and match it up with skills and so on and so on and so on, you you need to have control over um, the money that's currently controlled or, or, or more of the money that's currently controlled from Whitehall. But the elephant in the room is very much around um, the ability of local areas to raise any revenue themselves um, and this sort of very precarious stop-start situation that local institutions have got at the moment. Yeah, and this issue of, of funding reform, fiscal devolution, um, keeps coming up. Uh, Lisa Nandy was asked about it before. Um, Seb, I mean, bringing you in on not just that specific point, but the wider agenda. Um, Is the government still committed to levelling up as a central priority in the way that it said it would be in its last manifesto? It's uh, obviously published the the white paper about a year ago. Um, Do you still see it as, as, as the central driving mission of the Sunak administration? Well, I do, and I think you obviously can't and disassociate the turbulence of the last year from what's happened to levelling up, that we've gone through three prime ministers um, since the white paper came out, and they've all had different emphases on what they are looking to do there. And obviously when Liz Truss became prime minister, that interregnum, she had a very different approach to levelling up. She was much more focused on um, tax cuts and deregulation, and they had these short-lived investment zones, which are still continuing, so we're told, but it feels to me as if we've gone back more towards the Johnsonian idea of levelling up, which is to devolve power, to um, spread funds locally to places in a strategic way that will try and boost growth. That was the vision set out in the white paper. And the most obvious example of this is the fact that Michael Gove was reinstalled as levelling up secretary, that he was obviously on the back bench for a while. If you were going to do a different emphasis or version of levelling up, you you would have put someone different in that role. But I don't think you can disassociate the economic situation from this because levelling up as a concept and as the white paper was put forward was at a time when the economy was doing a better state than it is now. And across the whole of Whitehall, the Treasury, Deluca, all trying to find places they can cut money. And I think that is going to affect levelling up in some respects. And that is going to pose a political problem for the government. And by the way, on levelling up, I think you can actually expect some announcements on Thursday about this, that wheels are starting to move about this as things get going again within Whitehall. So that will actually be an indication, I think, of more funds, of more money. And I think you will also hear at some point from Michael Gove again about where we're at on this levelling up mission one year on from the white paper. Um, But ultimately, it does matter for both political parties, particularly for the Conservatives, because where did levelling up come from? It actually came from an early version, which was the jams, the just about managing, Mm -hmm. for those of you who can still remember the Theresa May government. That was her emphasis, and I think that was your first election, Ben, when all that was put forward. And essentially the same thing you're trying to get at, which is that we are one of the most centralised, unequal, developed countries in Western Europe. And how do we boost growth? We make the country more productive. We move away from this idea that in some respects, you can look at the UK and say we are Singapore with Portugal attached in an economic sense, which is not a healthy place for us to be, although both lovely um, holiday destinations. Mm -hmm. And... 
That's what leveling, that's what the leveling up agenda was about. And Boris Johnson came up with this because it sounded like a good optimistic thing. And on the steps outside Downing Street when he became Prime Minister, that's where leveling up came from. And there was about a period of a year where people thought, oh God, what is leveling up? And that's where Neil O'Brien, Michael Gove, Andy Haldane went away to come up with this idea. So leveling up as an idea, improving regional inequality is not new, but this particular policy was retrospectively fitted onto a slogan. And there's some people actually say the slogan of leveling up is not helpful because many voters don't want to be told they need to be boosted up in a way because that's obviously the implication if you need to be brought up then you're already down in a way so I'm always sort of skeptical about these big grand visions of it because in the, the actual way to address regional inequality is lots of small specific things and the way you do that is through devolution and that's where it really matters to have um, mayors who've got the powers to see these things through and I think obviously if you look across the political spectrum you've got Labour mayors, conservative mayors, who've all done very striking things for their conurbations, which is where most of the mayorities are obviously at the moment. Um, you asked the original question, is levelling up still got legs? Well, I'll say look at all the devolution deals that have been done. I know Jamie's spent um, many months and years of his life trying to battle to get this proper deal for the northeast of England, which is an obvious economic unit, yet for um, national and perhaps some local reasons as well. They haven't quite got to that point. They've got there now. You've got the North Yorkshire deal, hopefully East Mids deal. And I think by the next election, you will see these across the whole country. So you're going to have several rounds of levelling up funding, more mayors. Uh, and I think the question of what levelling up 2.0 looks like in the next Conservative manifesto is one that's starting to be discussed in party circles. On the Labour side, I'm sure you all heard from Lisa Nandy. Um, she is obviously fully engaged with this agenda. Says her levelling up is completely and utterly different from the Conservative levelling up. I would say that actually there's probably not that much difference between the two of them. And they both ultimately want to get to the same thing, but by different means. And when I did uh, Broken Heartlands, just to mention it again, still available in all good bookshops, um, um, it you know, I, I, I did 6,000 miles around the country speaking to people in these communities and what they felt was disempowerment. They felt that the world, society, the country, the political class had all moved on from their lives and they were stuck in a sort of paradigm that didn't work. And what they wanted was a solution to that and they voted for Brexit as a sort of cri de coeur from the heart to say, we're really angry, please help us. And that's where Leveling Up came from. And I think it's very heartening that for both parties, this is still central to what they're doing and for what they stand for. Now we're past that brief um, 44 days of Liz Truss. <laughs> um, thanks. Um, so, I mean, Ben, this point of uh, where the process goes next um, has just come up. What, what, what does levelling up 2.0, what does the next phase of this, the next phase of devolution look like from the Conservative perspective, do you think? Yeah, well, I, think I mean, and, and sorry, just to add, I mean, talking in terms of the the specific powers that have been hmm. devolved, um, as already mentioned, um, it's the sort of fiscal devolution that both parties seem to be quite hesitant to go near at the moment. Hmm. So is that like, uh, should that be a central part of the next phase? Well, there's definitely more to go at. I, I think we're in a, a kind of delivery phase now. People often say, you know, where is this levelling up that you talk about? You, you know, I represent Mansfield's one of the most disadvantaged communities on pretty much every measure you can find in these Midlands. Uh, so we've been a kind of prime target for levelling up funds and pots of money and all the rest of it. Truth be told, we're still at a point largely where those things are now coming to the end of planning phases. We're a couple of years, 18 months or so from town's fund announcements and things like that. So over the course of the next few months, um, I expect to see bricks and mortar 
on some of those projects. And um, some of those are big things, you know, um, uh, we're building big public sector kind of hub in the town centre, reviving town centre kind of economy. Uh, other things are very small, right? Little part of money for improving car parking. Uh, but actually they'll make a tangible difference. But uh, they are still very much in the, the kind of in the ether. And I'm very conscious that I've talked to residents a lot for a long time about hundreds of millions of pounds that we've got and they still go, where is this? hundreds of millions of pounds. So I think there's a big delivery priority over the course of, particularly in the build-up, obviously to a general election from a political mm. perspective. We have to have those things to point to. But um, uh, for all of that, you know, what does levelling up mean conversation? I've always been quite clear in my own mind. Uh, and to me, it's about creating the jobs and the well-paid jobs and opportunities in places that don't have them tying that together with the skills and the qualifications that those people need to be able to take advantage of that opportunity because it's no good just shipping people in from other places. And then the transport infrastructure, so you can physically uh, access all of that. And actually the devolution deals as they stand um, tie in those things, economic development, job creation, investment, skills and adult learning, and then transport uh, and infrastructure investment. So you have the opportunity to square that circle. And I find that really exciting. We've got um, a huge example in the East Midlands of Step Fusion, which was a £20 billion government kind of clean energy investment, which is that hub, you know, that you can see yourself then building a skills regime and a transport connectivity around the, the communities. Uh, and that, I think, is a really helpful example for us to paint a picture of what could happen uh, next. But then when we get beyond that, and I still think, as you say, government uh, and the Labour Party are kind of reticent to get into this place yet. There's a question about fiscal devolution and accountability. Mm. One, you know, and I, I'm only, I'm comfortable with that in a sense of, you need to move that um, power and that responsibility to a local level. I'm not interested in the kind of precepting conversation, adding extra tax burdens on, on in some places, but not in others. I don't think that's right. But where government can have a conversation about what can we pass over and localise decision making, I think is a positive step forward. And the other thing is in that kind of, um, uh, you know, if you want to really dig into levelling up, how do you pick up those people who are having the most difficult time? And I think some of that is about um, economic inactivity, Department of Work and Pensions, you know, school age education, FE, things that still aren't, um, those departments in particular, DWP and DFE, are really, really reluctant <coughs> to get into any kind of conversation about loosening the, um, the control over that from Westminster. Yeah, um, I'll come to uh, Jen and Jamie in a moment. As well, yeah. Susan, very quickly, you mentioned economic inactivity, and I think this is going to be a big theme of March's budget coming up, because I think the Chancellor and the Work and Pensions Secretary have both been tasked by the Prime Minister for looking at how you deal with economic inactivity within the UK, and obviously there are some macro levers you can pull in terms of the economy, but delivering that, I actually think a lot of that has to be done on a very local level, and it's going to be a very good test of some of the devolution settlements about how you do this, because, for example, trying to encourage over 55-year-olds to get back to work in Mansfield might be very different from encouraging 18 to 24-year-olds in Newcastle, for example. And I think that if the, when you look at how you solve these big national problems, you've got to look at it through the local lens and that you've got the communication channels and the local strategic capacity to deal with this if that's going to be a big, um, issue, a big, um, a big objective for the government, which I think it is going to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jen, uh, coming to you, on this issue of what's the next phase of, of, of this agenda, um, obviously one of the big things we're expecting to see over the next, uh, well, possibly weeks or months, is a new devolution deal for, for Greater Manchester, um, where, you know, the, 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 the powers held by Andy Burnham already exceed those held by any of his counterparts in other, other parts of the country. Um, and there's talk now of, of potentially quite radical 
reform um, in terms of funding, moving towards something more like a, a big non-ring-fenced pot of money that Greater Manchester can allocate, uh, maybe other, other powers in other areas as well. What are you expecting to, to, to see from those negotiations and, and, and how, how big a, a development might, might that one be? Yeah, so I, I guess the devolution deals that we've seen over the last six months or so and, and um, slightly you know, prior to that in the creation of the mayoralty in places like West Yorkshire and indeed um, Jamie's own mayoralty, they built on a template that was effectively drawn up in the first place by Greater Manchester because Greater Manchester had looked at the levers that they felt they needed to be able to pull, um, whether that was control over the buses or whether it was um, some degree of intervention around Brownfield. Uh, development or whatever the thing may be, and, and of course transport. So many of these deals are really kind of um, the sons and daughters, really, of the Greater Manchester deal in 2014. Um, what Andy Burnham and Andy Street have been doing over the last six months or so is is um, trying to, as you say, negotiate the next generation of those deals. And I imagine will have taken some heart from the fact that the idea of a single funding part for each um, city region um, was mentioned in the autumn statement, which wasn't, you know, wasn't, didn't have to be, but it was. Um, so, you know, the noises I've heard on that have been largely positive. And I think it comes back again to, you know, the control of the money, with the control of the money comes the power, um, the ability to be able to do something strategic and match up uh, your expenditure on different things that in Whitehall would be siloed. Um, I think would be a pretty significant step forward if that was to come if that was to come off. Um, I think uh, you've also, I mean, the other top priority I think of both mayors would say is skills. They want further control over um, technical education and adult education. There's, there's been a modicum of um, devolution already to the places that already have deals around the adult education budget. But I think it is worth bearing in mind that is a tiny, tiny fraction of government expenditure on skills. So it, it sometime has, sometimes has felt to me as though it was kind of, it was the bit that the government was kind of relatively happy to give away because it wasn't really that bothered about it. When you start getting a bit further down the line uh, to what Andy Burnham is talking about, which is essentially, we want to be commissioning our um, vocational courses and we want to essentially create the, the first system of its kind in the country by joining everything together and having control over it locally via the further education colleges, um, um, then that's, that's a significant step forward from where we have been to date. And I don't know how necessarily how smoothly those conversations are going in Whitehall. So I guess we'll, we, we, will, we will have to see. But I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to, the, the answer to the question, what, what is devolution 2.0, will be in those trailblazer deals, I guess, at least under this government. Yeah, yeah, those are going to be uh, potentially coming out, as, as mentioned, um, the next few weeks, maybe with the budget too. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, Jamie, um, looking ahead to well, the election and, 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 and beyond, um, we've already heard how there is quite a lot of common ground between the parties on this issue. Um, but uh, Lisa Nandy was, was here just earlier talking about Labour's specific plans for legislation, a take-back control uh, bill, I think they're calling it, um, some different guiding principles perhaps for, for devolution and levelling up under a Labour government. 
Um, what, what do you think the labor vision should be in this space and, and, and how should it differentiate itself from the Conservatives? Or are you happy just to say the Conservatives are doing a good job and Labour should just pick up and carry on the good work? <laughs> um, no, you won't catch me on that one, uh, Akash. Um, so I think one of the things to bear in mind is that there is no benchmark for devolution. Places are running at different speeds. So from being um, perhaps one of the later conurbations to come in at the north of Tyne, um, we are now, um, we have the, the per capita, the strongest Devo deal anywhere in the country, because that's based on what we've done. This is the first time a Merrill Combined Authority has changed its boundaries and reconstituted. Um, and we already have written into that deal elements of fiscal devolution, largely because I've been pushing it for so long and talking to so many ministers and, and, and other mayors on it. Um, and onward included uh, in that number of discussions with uh, Seb's uh, predecessors and colleagues. Um, so the idea that um, there is a, or even could be a one-size-fits-all is an issue. Now, the way it works under the Conservatives, it tends to be people come together, knock on the door uh, of, of central government and say, can we do a deal? And it tends to get whipped up. And there's elements of copy and paste from other deals, but they are also substantially individually negotiated. And the Labour Party's um, saying, right, well, we'll have this as a general principle where everybody can have devolution and they'll probably change the current government's governance system for level one, two, three Devo deals have to have level one, two, three governance, which includes a mayoral combined authority uh, with directly elected mayor. So maybe maybe that will go, maybe it won't. Um, what really makes a difference, though, is how do you get what you need? And this comes down to fiscal devolution. And the, the there's... When we talk about this, it's it's two words that encompass so much. Now, there's one is the idea. Do you take some elements of national taxation and just do, do a Barnett formula to the English regions? Well, that wouldn't actually be particularly unusual on an international basis, and it would have certain benefits. The real strength that comes with devolution is this phrase, you know your area, that ability to join things locally. Um, there is nobody in Whitehall knows the voluntary sector and the universities and the business community in my region the way I do. Uh, and nor could they be because they're divided on departmental lines. So what we want is the power to generate wealth here. And this is where it comes back into levelling up. You can't level up with concrete national infrastructure projects or anything like that, essential though they are. It comes back to getting everybody to a position where they feel they've got control of their lives, they have the ability to generate wealth, and they start to accrue some assets because there are so many people have no pension, don't own their own home, have nothing to pass on to their kids. That's what we need to be looking at. And this is a strategy of universal wealth generation. Now, that comes to, I don't want to raise more taxes. I've not put a precept in the Northeast. Uh, so far in the north of Tyne. I don't want to because we can't afford it. Our tax base is £300 per capita on business rates. It's £940 per capita in London. So I'd have to raise taxes three times higher to even uh, match what London could raise on this. And as soon as you say mayors have the power to raise the taxes, you can guarantee that any government's going to say, right, off you go, sunshine, we're cutting your central funding, which is not a place that's going to be conducive to our success. So we need to think about, well, when we implement uh, public transport infrastructure, new railway lines, the value of the land goes up. How do we capture that? When we generate more jobs here, 
can I have the first 18 months of the payroll taxes so I can continue to fund that? What can we do about reducing long-term health inequalities through innovative measures? I know with absolute certainty, if we had a better public transport system, we would reduce obesity, type 2 diabetes in 20 years' time. So what can we do now, knowing the evidence will support this, to get that investment now? And that's where we need to get to. And until any government realises that's the way you've got to approach it, they will not fix these long-term intergenerational problems. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting model. And um, we talked about it in a, in a longer conversation we had a few months ago, uh, Jamie, that is available on IFG website and how, how you might reform funding for Metro Mayors. Okay, I'm keen to move to questions. So yeah, I will take a round of questions from the room and then we've got a few online as well. So there should be a microphone We'll come to the lady in the front and the gentleman behind and then lady over there. So, yeah, please do say who you are and uh, where you're from. Hi, uh, Sarah Kalkin from Local Government Chronicle. Uh, ben and Jamie, you're both um, in areas that could have had devolution deals in 2016 and one of the reasons they both collapsed was a row locally over whether local politicians wanted to adopt a mayor. I just wonder, are your political colleagues now, are they genuinely persuaded, having seen the example of Andy Burner, Ben Houchen, or are they sort of reluctantly accepting it as a necessity? <laughs> and your good self, of course. <laughs> yes, good question. I don't think I've ever heard local council leaders um, especially enthusiastic about the mayoral model, but it's often seen as a prerequisite to get a deal, in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mark from the Centre for Inequality and Levering Up. Uh, I just had a question uh, in regards to uh, national co cohesion, because we often put forward the idea that devolution will resolve a lot of the problems the UK is facing right now. But isn't there a risk in the long term with all these sort of different levels of mayoral deals and local authority arrangements that uh, you we risk having a, a form of lack of cohesion among and between regions? Uh, and and um, and if you don't think so, how we can, how, how could we address that? And what would the, the role of the central government would be in terms of um, promoting, despite devolution, that sort of a degree of regional and national cohesion? Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. And then, yeah, one more just here. Thanks. Hi, uh, Purdy Fraser. Um, I'm on the oversight panel of the European Social Funds and Chair of National Numeracy. Um, I, my question is to all of you, does devolution actually help with the stop-start funding that you have, that various people have touched upon? So for example, what has been amazing with the European Social Funds, if you're not familiar, it's seven-year funding and then a three-year tail-off. And we've had astonishing results with economic inactivity, for example, to touch on what Seb said. We've had 50% of our um, 100,000 people we've delivered to across the UK, and for £3,000 a head, we've got them into education or training or a job which I, is an extraordinary return on investment for the country in, in health and social and economic terms. So how does, I mean, I, in favor of devolution hugely, but does it help on this issue? Okay, great. So yeah, mayoral model support for it, cohesion. I noticed um, on that point, Lisa Nandy says Labour will be comfortable with messiness, which is what I think we, we do have at the moment. Um, so should we be comfortable with messiness, I guess? And then, yeah, how could devolution help with stop-start funding? Seb, should I go to you first? Well, I think, obviously, 
The biggest advantage of devolution is having what should be a coherent economic unit, as you've seen through the various deals and how they have looked to try and get them in different ways. And I mentioned, obviously, we talked about North of Tyne earlier, and that was one where the, the Jamie's mayoralty was created because they couldn't get it further, and they've now got it on a much wider basis. And I think he would agree, and everyone's agreed, it's going to be one of the most significant devolution deals within the country. And the economic weight of what the new northeast of England mayor will have will be so much greater that when you're trying to have those arguments of central government, it's easier because obviously if you've got smaller units, the push, the stop-start funding, so it becomes a, a, a problem in those areas. So that's how I think devolution helps. It's simply the weight of the place that they represent and how they can make their arguments to government and also the fact it can be more difficult for governments to pull funding when it's affecting a lot more people than a smaller area, which obviously in turn will generate negative consequences. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Um on question one, I think um, we've kind of, some have re reluctantly accepted. I think it depends um, uh, on which part of it you're kind of talking about. So um, from Derbyshire and Nottingham's perspective, we've come to the conclusion, firstly, that part of the reason we're the lowest funded region in the country is because we've got 27 different leaders going off in different directions, and therefore there's an obvious benefit to having a voice in a way that we've not had before. But I still, you know, people are reluctant to have somebody perceived to be above them in the, the chain, aren't they, from that point of view? So we've kind of agreed, um, and Leicestershire, for example, on the other side of the border haven't. Uh, and so we're in different places uh, on that. I think broadly, um, you know, as we move forward, uh, we all came to the conclusion that we, you know, level one and two on the, the structure weren't worth having, frankly. And if, it's very clear, I think government probably deliberately set up a structure that said, look, if you want anything that meaningful in terms of delivering on levelling up or, or this, you've got to have level three and a mayor. So um, I think the honest answer to that is we accept that you can either have a mayor and the money or you can have notes, uh, and we'd rather have the money. Um, so we're getting on with it. On, on the second one, um, uh, it's this balance, isn't it? You talk about um, levelling up, having uh, choice on a local level, having devolved powers on a local level is a good thing. Uh, we also use this phrase postcode lottery, don't we? Mm. That things are different. And we use that as a negative all the time. Ultimately, I think if you want accountability for local decision making, you're going to have to accept that things are going to be different in different places. Um, and there's a level of that, um, particularly, you know, fiscal elements of it. If you're going to have different tax levels, you're going to have different <coughs> things in the future. Mm. Um, you can't prescribe that from the centre. So I think we do have to accept uh, a level of messiness on that front. But I would like to see um, as catch up in terms of speeds. You know, you've got some people, particularly West Midlands and, and Greater Manchester, now moving ahead on pilot, Pathfinder, you know, really interesting stuff. Some places not even started the conversation yet. And that potentially, you know, you end up deepening inequality if, if some people get left behind. So I think that we really need to catch up on. And on the final one, I'm maybe not best place to, to answer because we've not started yet, but um, I certainly think the, the premise of a 30-year funding settlement from that point of view gives us the opportunity. So when we, I mean, it's up to us how long we want to give out those grants or those investments for, uh, and we can, you know, as you described, do that over a longer period. But um, also some of the existing funds, so UK SBF obviously kind of replaces some of that European funding. Being able to do that, over a longer period in a more strategic way across the region, rather than, frankly, we've had district and borough councils go, well, I'm going to build a statue with it, because exactly. it's, you know, we need to make sure that we get the benefit out of that. So I do think there's, there's huge potential in it. Great, okay, uh, Jen and then uh, Jamie. Jen, do you want to go first? On, pick up on any of those points or questions. Yeah, I mean, very briefly on the national cohesion point, um, I think it's a very good question. And I think that the sort of strange and messy governance landscape that we've got across England uh, of, of, of local, different forms of local and then sub-regional and, I mean, you know, various in between, um, 
I maybe it's just that I'm a control freak and I would like the map to look clearer, but I, it isn't. It, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me, and I suppose that might explain why um, it isn't clear, for example, where it is that Labour wants to devolve to. And of course, yeah, okay, the line is we're comfortable with it being messy, but effectively, it's because who wants to go through another round of local government reorganisation or or, or 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 whatever. So. I think it's a. Um, I think that's an unanswered question, but um, other countries do seem to manage it. <laughs> you know, other countries do seem to be able to have more decentralised models than than we've got. Um, so I think you know one of the benefits, I suppose, of both main parties sharing the same analysis on decentralisation at the moment is that uh, it keeps that question alive and it keeps those kinds of conversations alive. You know, for example. It, and this is a different question, but for example, if you were going to replace council tax, what would you replace council tax with? You know, to at least even be having that kind of uh, conversation, I think, is a is a positive thing. And then as part of that, you obviously then have to have a conversation about, well, what remains nationally? Like, what do you keep in place at a national level to ensure that everywhere doesn't just completely break off and do its own um, independent um, republic? Um, on stop start funding, um, I mean, yes, as far as I can see, devolution does absolutely help with that. And that's really the premise behind both Andy Street and Andy Burnham asking for these um, single pots, because as Ben says, it allows you to be strategic over um, over a long term period. If you're trying to, you know, if your goal is to bring jobs into an area to lever in private sector investment to regenerate, um, these are things that really do take time. It is a long and grinding process. Um, and as someone who's lived in Manchester for the last 20 years, um, the visible change of the city centre here um, has taken all of that time and time before that to get to this to get to this point. And you can only really do that um, sensibly if you have some sense of what money you're going to have coming in and therefore you're able to plan ahead and you're also able to provide that certainty to private sector investors because the state is not going to be able to do all or probably even most of this. Great, thanks. Jamie? Thanks, yeah. On the um, coherence, uh, cohesion question, um, Jen was alluding to it, you know, in, uh, in somewhere like the US or Germany, well, this is already the case. In fact, it's already the case in the north of Tyne. We have Blythe Town Council and Berwick Town Council, and they decide what flowers they might want to plant in the park, where they can put the bark benches. It doesn't need me to make that decision. It's far better at that level. So um, I can appreciate um, <laughs> the way Jen was describing it, that from a journalist, you want to understand it without being in the weeds of it. But yeah. the, the flip question of that is, well, why don't we want a diverse government ecosystem if it works better in some places? But in particular... Um, this is the, the flip side of the postcode lottery. Where does the innovation come from if everybody has a one-size-fits-all approach? Um, and that is actually valuable, very valuable. You would never run an industry sector assuming everybody's developing the same products on the same timescale. That industry would become obsolete very quickly. And I'll contend a lot of our government methods are obsolete for that very reason. So on um, the stop-start funding, um, uh, ben was referring to the Shared Prosperity Fund. The, as we know, the deadlines for that, um, are a lot of it has to be spent this year. And it was only, I think, uh, a month ago that we got the approval for some of it. But what I'd said to my team is just develop and deliver good projects and we'll swap in the funding as we need to because we have a core funding pot. So it's because you have that 
um, financial maths, if you like, you can actually smooth out a lot of these bumps. What you what we've been able to do with our adult education budget um, in COVID, when people literally couldn't deliver their contracts because uh, buildings were closed, we were able to say to them, rather than clawing back the money, look, find a way of doing it. We'll change the contracts for you because it's devolved to us. So that flexibility does help with it. Does it stop it? No, it doesn't. Central government needs to stop, stop, start funding full stop. Everything should be on a more strategic basis. Uh, but that, that's a point about electoral cycles again. Uh, and I love the question, um, do people want to adopt a mayor? Um, um, I don't know what I look like and how ragged I look, but I don't need adopting. <laughs> um, I have a home of my own. Um, but that process one of the reasons I think we've got by far the strongest devolution deal in England, we've also got trailblazer status as well, by the way, um, is because we have that track record. And it were you to ask the leaders of Northumberland, North Tyneside or Newcastle. Um, so in some of these regional negotiations, Norma, who's the mayor of North Tyneside, she, she was saying to the other leaders, look, don't worry about it. It's the fear of a mayor impinging on their sovereignty that they're worried about, not really the mayor itself. And where you've got that track record, actually, mayors haven't done it. Um, or where mayors have tried to do it, they've not lasted very long. Um, because a wise mayor operates at that level. And it is a combined authority, not just a mayoral authority. And it works at its best when you lever in the knowledge, the proximity of the communities and the existing resources of local authorities to operate on a strategic basis. So actually, that's more of a fear than a reality. Mm -hmm. Great. OK, we've got a few uh, questions from online, um, I'll put to maybe individuals because the time is running short. Uh, question for you, for, for you perhaps, um, Seb, as you, you were talking about the, the, the funding um, due to be coming from mm. the, the levelling up fund and so on. There's a question from someone anonymous who asks, how, oh no, this one's not anonymous. Josiah Mortimer is the questioner. How does the government avoid the perception that it is picking favourites? Does there need to be a clearer framework for who gets what powers and, and what funding and, and why? So obviously during the first round of levelling up funding there was quite a lot of controversy over this where various projects were funded and where they went and all the rest of it. And, and this actually goes back to Ben's point about why the government wants to give mayoralties with places that get funding so that if places are getting extra money there is that extra level of both public and accountability to Whitehall on where the money goes to. So I think if you were just giving money willy-nilly and it was all just being monitored through Deluxe then that would obviously create a bigger problem with that. In terms of more transparency you know as with all the various the funds that you can apply to government to there there's openly available criteria on where their money is being given to the bids go through that as well and they're assessed by officials and civil servants who look at them against that criteria you're always going to get a political element to it because it's ministers who are signing off where this funding goes and that's you know that's just a sort of part of the life and I think that you know I, I when I looked at the first round of the funding it looked to me as if it was relatively straightforward. It wasn't as if they were just going, right, there's that target seat, let's give money to that, let's give money to that, let's give money to that. The example I would give is the fact that Andy Burnham, who obviously represents a city that in its core inner city doesn't have many Labour MP, uh, Tory MPs, certainly probably won't after the next election. And then, but a Labour mayor gave him a billion pounds devolved to improve Manchester's bus network. And that's an example of them doing things where there is a good business case and it makes sense, as opposed to just doing it for party political reasons. There 
will always be elements who want more transparency and want more information on that. But you know, as I said, there's always a balance to be held on the time and efforts you spend doing those processes and just trying to get the money out the door because that's the issue with a lot of these levelling up funds. The government's got this kind of five-year objective that started with the 2019 Parliament. We're obviously entering the last part of that. There's not much time left to get money out and to get projects built before the sort of the judgment will be made on levelling up come 2024. So I appreciate the balance of both things here. Yeah, great, thanks. Um, okay, question for you, Ben, from uh, Graham Pendlebury, uh, who asks, if a local or regional devolved body fails badly, um, does the panel, do you expect central government to act as financial and policy backstop, and does that not raise a moral hazard problem? And well, there needs to be some accountability. I think ultimately, I mean, in our entire system, that's elections, isn't it, at the end of the day? But we also, one of the key things, I think, is building a structure that's coherent and sensible. There are examples uh, that people rehearse around the country of you know, good versions of this, um, you know, Manchester and Birmingham uh, or Teesside or others, and others that are reputationally less good. Um, I shouldn't know names, probably. <laughs> West of England, probably. Peterborough and Cambridgeshire, where people look around and go, that's too complicated, or it's not really worked as effectively mm. as it could. Um, but the joy of it, for me, is to go back uh, in, in conversation with government. So all these are moving feasts, right? And if it's not working, you can go back and have another conversation about how you make it work. It's not just a case of, this is your deal, off you go, live or die. <coughs> uh, and in all of those examples, we've seen, um, just as Jamie's deal is evolving in the northeast, you know, you, it moves on, it grows. Uh, and if you can prove and build that trust with government that you are able to deliver some outcomes, then you can go and access more in that space. If you've had a load of money on something else and it's gone nowhere and achieved nothing, and then you probably won't get any more. And I think that's how um, you know, government probably oversees that process. Um, but it's, it's the opportunity, right? We've got a starting point in the East Midlands where we've got you know, a pot of funding, we've got the basic set of powers, and we would hope, as, as Jamie described earlier, you know, that you go and you build that trust over time, you show your outcomes, and then you can go and get more off the back of it. But it strikes me, without having started it, as a, an ongoing conversation with government, as opposed to them coming and cracking the whip if they don't like it. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And uh, final question to, to you, Jen, and then I'm afraid we're going to have to call this to a close, which is how should government balance giving mayors enough powers to, to implement their priorities while ensuring that individual councils within the regions don't have their plans overridden? In other words, how do we strike the balance between this regional tier Metro mayors and uh, local government and individual councils. Big question. Well, I mean, the model that we've currently got, I suppose, aims to address that tension, doesn't it? And it was always the tension in the first deal in Greater Manchester between local authority leaders who didn't want to um, be handing any control over to a mayor. Um, but uh, and the argument at the time was always actually that these powers are not being taken away from local authorities. They're being taken away from central government. Um, and essentially, we all have to sit in a room together and um, come to a kind of collaborative consensual agreement. Um, I think that that model in reality hasn't yet reached maturity. Um, we've had it in Greater Manchester for, what, seven or eight years. Um, I think... The, the other combined authorities across the country with their mayors, and there are now going to be more, I think that is the thing to watch as to whether that is a model which is workable everywhere and whether it's sustainable everywhere. But I think that model is effectively designed to try and get around that problem. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so uh, that does bring us to the end of the session. I know we could have continued for a while longer. 
Um, but um, yes, time is, is, is passing. So thank you all for joining us. Um, thanks again to, to Grant Thornton as well. Um, as mentioned in uh, 13 minutes or so, so 10 past five, we'll be uh, doing a live recording of the IFG podcast here. So please join us for that. Um, and then there will be drinks to follow. Um, so thank you to all of you and please join me in thanking our panel for their contributions. <laughs>